Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the State of the Arts podcast. This week we're featuring an interview with Dr. Dave O'Brien, who is a leading culture and arts policy expert and recently published a book called Culture is Bad for You, which looks at inequalities in the creative industries. We spoke to Dr. Dave about these inequalities, about his findings in the book and about how the last six months affects these inequalities. It was a fascinating conversation and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Remember to check out the rest of our podcast episodes on our website. Can you tell us just a bit about yourself and how you got into your work and, you know, was there anything that you particularly stands out to you um, that sort of inspired you to get into to working in the culture and arts policy field and start promoting and defending the arts the way you do? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Thanks. I have this weird job title, which is uh, Chancellor's Fellow in Culture and Creative Industries, which is a kind of like grand uh, title, but it just means I'm a kind of senior research fellow at the University of Edinburgh. And initially my work was about kind of urban cultural policy, uh, doing a lot of stuff around um, kind of urban culture in the north of England, um, comparing Liverpool and and Newcastle and, and, and Gateshead. But uh, more recently, I've been working on inequality, kind of broadly defined, in the cultural sector. And a lot of this actually came from uh, myself and my colleagues kind of being slightly frustrated about how public debate was going, um, in particular cultural and creative occupations. So where are we? Maybe like five years ago or so. Um, A couple of us... Um, we're looking at media debates about actors and this question of kind of like, is culture like too posh? Um, is, you know, kind of culture getting worse in terms of things like social mobility? And um, we were sort of motivated to say, well, actually, like British sociology can answer that question in a way that, you know, um, Julie Walters arguing with Benedict Cumberbatch is, you know, interesting and they've got important perspectives but actually like, you know, social science can say what's actually going on. Um, And a lot of this kind of current work has has grown from that really, uh, trying to answer questions that I guess are a big concern to whether it's like visual arts, museums, the music industry, film and TV, uh, theatre, and trying to give, I, I guess, like, I mean, facts is a bit strong, but, you, you know, trying to sort of do research informed or, or dare I say it, kind of like evidence-based um, interventions into these debates. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's obviously really, you know, like you say, really valuable and not something that um, we hear enough of. Um, are you yourself out of interest in, you know, do you perform or write or um, sort of engage in any like artistic activity yourself? I have no artistic ability whatsoever. Um, like, you know, and I've learned this the hard way from like getting on for like 30 years of trying to play the guitar and still, you know, not being able to. You know, yes, still on smoke yeah, on the water. Yeah, you know, I wish. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, uh, I'm very much kind of like someone who I, I suppose like comes to this slightly sort of in awe of people's ability to be, you know, kind of creative and um, have a creative practice and, you know, sustain a creative practice. Um, But also, I guess, someone who is interested in why it is that it seems as if only certain people get to do that and other people don't. Yeah, when you're you're doing your research, you're engaging with people, does that that help having that perspective? Um, You know, sort of being stood away almost and having a, a... different level of um, analysis when you're facing these topics? I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting question, and it's one um, that actually was, it was a bit of a struggle going back to that um, actors and, and media example uh, I gave earlier because a bit of analysis that um, myself, Orion Brook, and, and Mark Taylor have, have been working on is trying to think about how um, the kind of cultural sector, creative occupations have changed since the early 1980s. And 
there's a story that we got when we were doing like interviews with people and there's a story that's like really um kind of well represented in contemporary uh media and in like autobiographies and stuff like this about you know the 80s being a time when cultural jobs are like really open um people were able to you know kind of um get involved in whether it was like you know the theater or, or as journalists as musicians and now these things have been kind of shut down and, and only kind of posh people who have you know economic social cultural resources can get into them and, and what we were finding looking at um data from the census was that actually like those stories are slightly kind of misrepresentative like those people who made it are extremely unusual um, and actually, you know, the kind of likelihood of making it in the early 1980s, if you're a working class person, is roughly the same really low likelihood of working it, um, of, of working in culture if you're a working class origin person now. So, yeah, it, it's really tricky that actually, because we were a bit puzzled about, you know, do we kind of come in and say, like, you know, we as an objective social scientist, we know what's going on and you're all wrong, um, which is not the way to do things at all. Um, or do we kind of try and think through why it is people have got these, you know, narratives, why actually, you know, those kind of stories could be really useful and really powerful to make us remember that actually, you know, the set in the 1980s, although it was only a few uh, maybe unrepresentative individuals who were making it, they still got, you know, lots of support in terms of like housing benefit, in terms of, you know, um, a kind of a much more supportive social system. Um, and those are the things that we, you know, maybe want to defend and, and maybe say are a, you know, a good idea to to, to bring back. So yeah, it, it's it's really tricky. That and I guess I'm I'm sort of wary of people who are too, you know, kind of keen to say, well, I've uncovered the truth here. Everybody else is wrong. Mm. I mean, that's interesting that because you think things like sport and playing musical instruments or um, you know doing sort of artistic practice, it's you're told from a young age you you practice and you practice and you get better and better and better and you're almost led to believe that it's on the basis of how good you are that determines how successful you get with it um but i guess you know how far how far is it a meritocracy how far does your skill and amount of practice you put into getting good at these things make a difference and i'm are you finding that um, it's harder to make those you know, make those arguments for people, and that you know clearly it's you know, not so much how good you are; it's so many other things. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really tricky this because, like, obviously, talent really matters, um, and I think it'd be like you know kind of crazy to say like everybody who who makes it is just making it because of who they know or, or, or whatever. Um, and indeed, you know, some of the I guess really privileged people. Um, that maybe, you know, um, get criticised in um, media discussions um, are actually also, you know, really talented. They're really great at, you know, what they do. I guess our concern is, is more the sense that um, it's definitely not enough to just be talented. Um, you know, even if you're like a kind of unbelievable um, genius at, I don't know, you know, uh, writing music or or painting or, or something like that you know you still need a combination of um, lucky breaks which matter but also actually there's loads of like resources you need uh, you know some of these are kind of like financial economic some of these are in terms of social networks and then some of these are more kind of like tricky to define um, but are grounded in, uh, I guess, what we call, you know, kind of cultural resources, like knowing how to fit in, knowing, you know, what the kind of like the right things to say, the right way to dress is, you know, this kind of stuff. And what we find is that that set of resources are really like unevenly distributed across society. And, you know, it, it, it's people um, who often start with a lot of those resources uh, because of, you know, um, kind of privileges of, of uh, birth and, you know, the sort of family um, they're born into, the, the occupations, the jobs, the class and social status their parents or, or families have, that not only do they, you know, start with more, but actually our social system seems to give them more as well, you know. So, again, to, to give an example um, from the book we've just written, we, we looked at the way that, you know, in some ways, like, all kids kind of encounter culture in school 
but you know the more sort of uh, affluent better resourced kids not only get you know more access to culture are less dependent on lucky breaks uh, are less dependent on you know the kind of look of having a good supported teacher or whatever but actually their experience of like what culture means to them when they're growing up is completely different um, and the kind of things that they take for granted about, you know, what everybody gets an art lesson, everybody is reading books, everybody has, you know, kind of access to music lessons or whatever. Um, when you speak to uh, other people, um, you know, their experience as kids is of, well, actually, I was really lucky because the supportive teacher helped me. I had little or no access to culture. You know, there weren't art lessons. Not everybody um, gets access to a musical instrument, stuff like this. So, yeah, I, I guess it's that kind of you know you have to respect and you know support talent um and we should never you know kind of shy away from celebrating that but we just need to be realistic about what what other you know kind of support you need to to make it as a professional yeah absolutely so um that sort of segues quite nice into you know the, the work that you've been doing you you mentioned the, the book that you've got coming out and um, do you want to sort of share anything about um like the findings you you came across your sort of research process and what what you're sort of hoping uh the impact is of this of this book yeah i guess the, the, the kind of short version like academics are terrible at sort of short versions of things but um we basically tried to bring together lots of really high quality data about who works in cultural jobs mostly drawn from the Office of National Statistics. So we're quite, you know, kind of secure that we've got like um, accurate pictures of the workforce. And then also data about like who audiences are, who goes to what, what people's tastes are. And then by setting out the way that the workforce and the audience is really unequal, we try and think about, well, how does that work then? And we did a couple of hundred interviews uh, across a range of different cultural occupations. And we find things like, you know, low pay is endemic to cultural and creative jobs, but the experience of low pay is really differentiated by people's social class origins and their age. Um, you know, younger people from uh, middle class backgrounds, their experience of like working for free or low pay is like the Edinburgh Festival or investing in their first film or, you know, touring Europe with a production they've written for free or whatever, mm. um, hosting their own first exhibition. Um, our working class, younger people are telling us that, you know, their experiences like student films that go nowhere is of, you know, being exploited and, and unpaid to, you know, work in galleries that never exhibit them, never give them access to networks, stuff like this. Um, then we look at, kind of mentioned, people's experience of culture growing up and how that's differentiated by social class. We try and look at uh, the impact of gender. So, you know, we've got some pretty stark kind of findings about gender inequality, um, about, you know, how kind of institutionally sexist um, lots of different cultural occupations are. Um, we do the same with um, thinking about how kind of careers work over the long term. And we really keen to kind of stress that whilst you know we're talking about social class there are lots of kind of cliches about social class and I guess you know certainly in contemporary political discourses social class seems to have this like baggage of like you know a kind of old white guy who's a manual laborer and we were keen to say well actually if we want to understand social class we've got to understand how it's related to gender and to uh, to race as well so we look at in particular working class origin women uh, from ethnic minorities who make it into cultural occupations um, and actually a couple of our case studies are from uh, the visual art world and it's pretty bleak to be honest you know they experience discrimination on the basis of their social class on the basis of their race and on the basis of their gender as well and this you, you know we've we still draw on other academic work to talk about the kind of like hostile environment they face and then we kind of wrap up the book or we, we sort of come to the conclusions in the book by looking at um, people running the cultural sector. And often they can be a bit, you know, sort of like overlooked. Um, and there's comparatively less academic literature telling the story of, 
the middle class origin white guys who kind of make decisions in culture. And we were sort of keen to understand like how they make decisions, you know, what their experiences are. And their experiences are much more kind of benign. Their experiences are, you know, kind of getting lucky of having, you know, they have to work hard, they struggle, they're talented, but, you know, they have a, a kind of an almost sort of like effortless, um, you know, career trajectory. And then, although they're really committed to challenging inequalities, you know, they're definitely sort of like hearts are in the right places. Actually, their sort of understanding of inequality um, is one of the problems and one of the things that kind of reinforces uh, the patterns of audience and workforce that we start the book with. So, yeah, there's a very uh, kind of brief overview. Yeah. Um, did you end up finding you guys had some very clear suggestions for what um, either those in the creative industries or those who fund creative industries um, can do differently or ways that these things can change in any way? Yeah, we, we were a bit torn about this uh, when we were kind of thinking through the conclusion. Um, I'm actually part of another project or actually a, a couple of projects that are very kind of keenly interested in the, the really applied um, side of, of this academic research, which is literally like what should organisations do. And when we were thinking about the conclusion, there's kind of an academic answer, which is... Um, on the one hand, we have to be aware that like all the good work that's gone on, whether it's like mentoring schemes, bursaries, um, whether it's um, approaches to changing commissioning, stuff like this, even, you know, you know uh, when we're thinking about uh, how people kind of, you know, understand maybe their unconscious sort of biases in, in hiring, you know, which is a very disputed and, you know, the, the evidence there is is very patchy about whether those kind of training schemes work or not. Things could be a lot worse if people weren't doing these things. But unfortunately, like with everybody's best efforts, it's really difficult to kind of challenge um, these structural problems. And a concrete example I can give you actually is um, I'm part of a research project um, that is in partnership with uh, the Western Jerwood Charitable Bursaries Programme, which um, is designed to get um, early career uh, creatives from, um, I guess, kind of poorer backgrounds um, into uh, the arts across the country. And they've been going for 10 years and they've had this kind of extremely, incredibly successful programme of getting, uh, I think it's about 80, uh, really secure careers for the young people they work with. But over that same period, the kind of demographics of the sector have not changed. You know, there is still this embedded um, structural problem of, of class and things like uh, race and gender are still uh, long-standing problems too. So we sort of say, you know, there's definitely a line of thought that says, actually, we need to start again. And, you know, alternatives, whether they're like, um, you know, kind of cooperatives that are very, you know, kind of outside or resistant to the art world, whether they're like critiques of uh, contemporary funding systems, you know, that try and do things like, you know, without um, help from, from the Arts Council, whether they're, you know, uh, approaches that are almost kind of solely commercial and are driven by being responsive to audience demands. Um, you know, these alternatives might be things we, we could look at and sort of think about. But also we say that, you know, we shouldn't stop campaigning and things like, for example, you know, I hate this term, but, you know, reverse mentoring where, you know, younger people who are less likely to get a foothold in an organisation actually kind of, you know, um, are hired and supported to educate senior staff, you know, so senior staff kind of have a much... Um, more, I guess, kind of, you know, detailed and, and deeper understanding of the lived experience um, of people that are likely to be excluded. So they can change, for example, how they do hiring, what they ask for, how they uh, narrate their organisation to uh, potential employees, this kind of stuff, you know, all this stuff still needs to go on. And I think the, the other thing um, we, we were kind of keen to stress in the book is that Almost the worst thing that could happen is 
whether it's individuals, organizations, funders, to say, well, we've done this one thing, so we've solved the problem. And actually what we try and say is because these issues of inequality are really long-standing and, you know, we've got evidence that they've been with us for, you know, a very long time, then there isn't one solution. And the issues will kind of change and adapt. Those, you know, with the most kind of resources, the most privileges will kind of change up their approaches and behaviours. So they, you know, almost kind of inevitably end up being overrepresented in the kind of top bits of cultural occupations. So, you know, it's something that unfortunately is a kind of like long-term struggle. Um, And that long-term struggle is something that, can't just be solved by like doing one thing um there isn't you know as the internet says there is not one simple trick to um solving inequality yeah you're right i mean in terms of i know it sounds like sort of wishful thinking but you know, the, the long-term strategy that you're describing you know i think um representation is obviously a, a massive thing and if over time after uh, you've identified the issue the way that you guys have and it becomes more discussed and people become more conscious of it and change you know, gradually happens. The sort of artists that you're describing that aren't getting the access that they could do will hopefully see more people who've gone through those routes and you know, they, they, they see something in them that they themselves experience and they think, well, if they can do it, then you know, I can do it. Um, I think I saw Michaela Cole talking about her uh, experience and how she was really driven by... Um, the sort of invisibility of an experience that she lives and the her thinking well there's nothing on tv for for, for me to look at and say i that's what i that's what i do so I, i'm going to make that tv show um i wonder if you if you feel there's much to be said for for moments like the me too movement or the black lives matter movement and do these big uh, social cultural moments that don't just obviously don't just affect arts and culture affect much broader trends in society do, do they have impact at the time will they have longer impact that we're, that we're yet to see as well i mean they're, they're really crucial in some ways because um i think as, as we can see you know playing out right now actually they force particularly organizations that commission and fund um to be more responsive so you know both uh bbc channel four have, have committed to um, commission decisions on the back of, of Black Lives Matter. I guess that you know the risk is that it allows organisations on um, you know maybe a kind of the nice level, the, the benign level is organisations just pay a bit of lip service. But actually, the more worrying level is that organisations use the moment to say, well, you know, we've responded, and that means that you know. Um, whether it's like the diversity box has been ticked or, you know, well, like we've, you know, done some commissioning and it means that, you know, our organisation is like perfect now. And rather than kind of taking seriously, again, you know, the the long-term trends and the need for, you know, really serious kind of organisational change, um, organisations just get a bit complacent. And that's the kind of like the worrying one, but the really sort of appalling one is the cynical co-option of those moments by organisations that actually have got pretty, you know, poor records um, and indeed, you know, have got evidence of, you know, institutionalised racism or, you know, really kind of like long-term institutionalised sexism that they you know kind of use that moment as part of their brand um and, and actually you know I, I think that's a real danger um and in some ways you know it's been good um that we've seen you know the levels of activism um around organizations and holding them to account but to an extent you know individuals who are already marginalized shouldn't bear the burden of changing organizations by you know sort of holding up a mirror to them you know, organisations and, again, you know, funders should be really kind of proactive and, and out in front of this stuff. And, yeah, the, the kind of the worry for this moment, and we can see it with what's going on now as, you know, kind of supposedly business models change and, you know, 
um, organisations are thinking about their long-term sustainability as a result of COVID. Depending on, you know, the accuracy of, of reports about some major organisations, particularly in, in London, it seems they've learned absolutely nothing from the Black Lives Matter moment and movement. They've, you know, not reflected at all on um, how Me Too should be changing the arts uh, when they come to decisions about who gets fired, made redundant, and who they keep. So, yeah, it, it, you know, in some ways there's, there's kind of hope, but also, like, I think it's almost a kind of risky moment as well. Mm. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about COVID and um, the, the sort of state of the arts at this moment. Um, first of all, I mean, I, I was wondering from the sort of perspective as a professor and someone who, you know, looks into policy and the arts on that kind of level, um, was there a moment when you saw what was happening and you began to grasp the scale of it and you started to think, oh, this is what it's going to mean for the arts and creative and cultural industries? Yeah, I mean, like, almost immediately, actually. Like, as soon as, as, soon as lockdown was, you know, kind of mooted, there was that moment of, like, well, you know, any organisation that uh, depends on audiences is going to be in trouble. Um, and then knowing, you know, finances can be a bit kind of closed um, in, in the arts and, and in, you know, music industry, film and TV, but knowing, you know, the kind of, for some sections um, of the arts, the kind of fine margins that um, lots of, whether they're, you know, kind of companies or individual freelancers, um, sole traders, et cetera, operate on, you know, even a kind of month's disruption, you know, could be you know, sort of terrible. And knowing a bit as well about how the kind of labour force is organised, you know, we're not talking about a sector that has got, you know, four or five monolithic companies that employ everybody and, you know, can relatively easily furlough staff or whatever. You know, we're talking about a really kind of like fragmented um, complex um, area of the economy, which means that many government schemes, you know, like, for example, the furlough, just don't apply. Um, and, you know, when, when the government was putting together the package around self-employment, it was clear there were going to be issues there as well. And unfortunately, you know, in, in Britain, um, certainly, you know, in, in the English context, we have a social security, a welfare system that is designed to punish people. It's not designed to support them. Um, and, you know, dropping out of maybe a precarious freelance career, which, you know, may have been well paid if you're getting a lot of work into uh, the benefits and social security system is pretty grim. You know, so I think really early on, it was clear that, um a lot of the longer term trends about, you know, questions about like pay and insecurity and work and stuff, they were going to be, you know, kind of right up there, as well as questions about business models um, and kind of, you know, broader questions about organisational and sector sustainability. So, yeah, I mean, pretty early on, it was really obvious that this was going to be trouble. And, you know, that is kind of accelerated I'd guess as it's become clear that you know there wouldn't be a return to kind of you know normal quote-unquote in the autumn the panto season would be cancelled for theatres um, you know museums and galleries are open but they're doing you know a quarter of um, attendees because of social distancing mm. uh, obviously like you know the live music industry has just Stopped. Yeah, the, the um, entire festival season and then yeah, you know, performing to 40-50% capacity venues now. Obviously, it's a nightmare. So yeah, I mean it was really obvious that this, you know, I it, it's important to stress that like some bits of the economy and some bits of the cultural sector have done incredibly well. So, you know, anything that is basically a digital provider of intellectual property you know copyright material that it owns has seen you know like bigger audiences you know has seen new subscribers this kind of stuff but 
I mean, that, that's only one part of the cultural economy. Um, the rest of it, you know, which is heavily dependent on um, not just kind of, you know, audiences, but also on freelancers, contracts, um, you know, quite often short-term project-based. It's, it's just, you know, really struggling. Mm. And, you know, obviously your, your specialty is inequality and looking at um, class demographics within these things. And um, now that this has happened and COVID-19 has affected, you know, the, the, the enhancing effect on inequality that this has had across everything, I mean, whether it's education, um, as you say, whether it's sort of the job market, whether it's to do with the arts, you know, how has, um, how has this affected those who are from working class or less privileged backgrounds and are now going to be, um, well, you know, the, the state that they're in right now, like what's the, what's the, the, the future holding for them, do you think? Uh, so with some colleagues at the um, Centre for Cultural Value in Leeds, uh, and also it, it's it's a very big project, actually, we've got people from University of Bristol, Manchester, Newcastle. We've just started this big project to look at what the impact of uh, COVID is on the arts and cultural system in the UK more, more generally. So, you know, like the comments I, I could give you now are sort of like slightly uh, speculative and they're less, you know, kind of research informed as they will be in about kind of six to eight months time once we've really got into um, our analysis but if we look at the 2008 recession um, we you know we know that a lot of um, the kind of cultural sector uh, contracted um, particularly things like film and tv um, there, there were real issues in, in those industries and as they kind of re-emerged, particular demographic groups really suffered. So, for example, um, women didn't come back into the film and TV industry um, at the same rate as men did. So there was a really kind of clear, you know, kind of gender imbalance. And, I mean, it, it's tricky because going back to one of your earlier questions, I think there is a really, you know, kind of serious focus uh, following the summer of Black Lives Matter on race and ethnicity in um, parts of the cultural sector. So we might see that, you know, whether it's the recovery or, you know, I mean, re recovery is, 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 is hopeful, but, you know, we, we might see the impact because of the focus around the be less severe um, on cultural workers from ethnic minority backgrounds. But even then, we know that they're likely to suffer um, because of the way that um, a lot of different dynamics come together. So we know that networks are really important. And, you know, in kind of fast-paced project-based work, networks matter. So you're likely to kind of call up people that you know. If your networks are closed already, then you're unlikely to kind of like reach out beyond those networks. Um, People with more resources can afford to kind of ride out uh, this, this moment. Although, you know, I, I think it's really important to say that, um, you know, this moment is affecting everybody really negatively. So we should be, you know, kind of sympathetic and in solidarity to almost kind of anybody who is losing their, their cultural and creative career. But what's likely is those with the most economic, social and cultural resources are likely to be able to kind of weather the storm are likely to be, you know, maybe top of the list for commissions. Um, there's a risk potentially that commissioning is, you know, maybe risk averse. And we need to unpack the way that, you know, uh, whether it's, um, you know, class, race and, and gender that are seen as like risky, um, to put that in inverted commas, whereas like, you know, hiring, I don't know, a posh white guy who's famous is seen as not risky for an organisation and, you know, the baggage of individuals being constructed as risky just because of, say, the colour of their skin or, or their class background is, is obviously, you know, really, really offensive and something we need to, to struggle against. But there's a real danger there, I think. Um, and I, I wonder whether, you know, the kind of, the idea of playing it safe by organisations will, or by commissioners or, or whatever, will reveal a lot actually about, these kind of you know class race and gender inequalities so yeah unfortunately i mean it, we looked 
actually last week, uh, myself and some colleagues published some data from the Office for National Statistics Labour Force Survey looking at what the cultural workforce looked like in 2019. And that was, you know, kind of fairly grim reading um, in, in equality terms. I expect it will look much worse when we see the 2020 data um, with a kind of longer term impact um, on those who are, you know, kind of less well resourced. Mm. We, um, we spoke a bit about activism earlier and uh, it seems now there's been a bit of mobility in the arts world. There was a march in Manchester here where I'm based um, just the other week, the hashtag we, we make events protests. I think down in London, South Bank um, workers had a, a similar protest. Do you think there's uh, any optimism there? Anything can, you know, any sort of outcome there that we can sort of take some hope from? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this stuff is essential, um, partially to, to make people aware of like how the sector functions. Yeah. Um, you know, there's loads of kind of like hidden jobs that maybe, you, you know, people just kind of, you know, don't know are, are being lost um, that aren't, you know, maybe the kind of front stage or, you know, front of house or, or, or whatever. Um, and then also, I think, you know, in the political moment where, um, whatever we think of, of, of the government, you know, they've invested um, by like English standards, a substantive amount of money. Um, it's, you know, comparatively low by European, um, continental European standards. And we can debate, you know, government policy here, but they made this investment seemingly to support the sector, but there seems to be a big kind of disjuncture between what we think, you know, supporting the sector means and then the reality of where, you know, job losses are, are falling and, you know, who is likely to be kind of most excluded. So I think actually, you know, raising awareness that, you know, whatever it was, 1.57 billion sounds like a lot, but still, you know, you're talking about substantive job losses that are likely to fall on, you know, those who are kind of least able to support themselves uh, within the sector. Um, by really major organisations. Mm. So, yeah, I think those two things um, are, are really important. And, you know, kind of engaging the public matters here um, a great deal, I think. And, and I think one of the things actually going right back to thinking about audiences is, is how, you know, people value artistic and cultural organisations even where they have, like, little or nothing to do with them. Um, you know, and the vast majority of, of the English, uh, certainly where we've got good data, but also like the rest of the British population, often, you know, don't go near a theatre, they don't go to galleries, you know, um, I mean, a tiny proportion go to the opera. But there is this sense that like these organisations matter and, and they're good things to have. So, that, you know, kind of getting public concern and public support um, is really crucial here as well. Yeah, no, that's it. That, that's that's really interesting. I actually went. I went to the cinema last week um, to see Tenet, uh, just because the the idea of going to the cinema was just so such an exciting prospect. And it was you know the first day, but there were still very like few people in the cinema. And I started to think, why why is nobody rushing out? And I remembered, well, I guess most people only go to the cinema once every six months anyway. So having six months of cinemas being closed might not be that much of a, a shock for the, a lot of people, members of the public. Um, but yeah. I mean, I, I went as well, um, and it was really like it was kind of sad in a way because, like, um, you know, you'd be used to um, you know kind of reasonably full cinema on a sort of Saturday afternoon. I mean, it doesn't help that Tenant is absolutely terrible. <laughs> so and it's two or two two hours twenty minutes, you know. Yeah. Uh, maybe people are just like, st staying away because they don't want to see it. But unfortunately, we know that isn't the case. People are still rightly, very rightly concerned about enclosed spaces. So. Yeah, the experience is very different as well, isn't it? It's it's um, on the on the websites. It says you, know, you have to wear a mask the whole time. When we were in there, we were kind of not you know, enforced to wear the masks, and when we were eating and drinking, um, you know, we didn't have to. But you can imagine it's it's still not as appealing as experience as it usually is and um, certainly might not outweigh the benefits of sitting on your sofa and getting an unlimited number of 
choices of films to watch just from your own home. Um, but at least I was, I was still kind of glad that it was an option again and that things are starting to creep back to normal. And um, yeah, I mean, the fact that they were showing Empire Strikes Back was yeah, another positive. And I know that I can go and see some other classic movies in the cinema now if I really want to, which I couldn't have ever done before. So, you know, there are some some positives to be had. Yeah, and I mean, there's two things to say. One is like, you know, there's some, you know, gig bookings, some of the major festivals have put out their um, their lineups for next year. And, you know, hopefully these, um, I guess, kind of, you know, communal experiences will be available for us um, over and above, you know, the need to like employ people in the events industry and, you know, make sure uh, musicians are getting access to uh, to gigs. There's there's currently a, quite a good campaign to try and highlight how, you know, things like Spotify, YouTube, the way their business model works is really detrimental to artists and, you know, artists really not making money um, in any real kind of substantial ways from streaming. Um, and at the same time, I mean, you made that uh, point about, you know, kind of access to culture in, in the home. Um, some colleagues I went with, at Nesta uh, as part of the Policy and Evidence Centre on the Culture and Creative Industries. Unfortunately, they've done really good work on this. And unfortunately, there's there's a really clear kind of set of inequalities about access to culture, actually. You know, and whilst, you know, kind of what we call, I guess, middle-class homes, cultural consumption went up an incredible amount. Uh, Working-class homes, this is a very, you know, kind of loose set of definitions, their cultural consumption also went up, but, you know, nowhere near as much. And there's a really distinctive class gradient, actually, in um, access to cultural consumption. So, you know, even where we've got supposedly, I guess, kind of shared experiences, they're still marked by important inequalities. Yeah, that's interesting. Is there anything that you specifically are, have been really, really missing and, you know, can't wait to, uh, to, to experience again and going out and see live uh, once again, I mean everything. Like um, not going to you know whatever it's been. Not going to a gig for six months. I guess is the longest period of my entire life. I've not been to a gig, um, and there was like I suppose that like they don't count in London's festivals, but there were like three or four really major you know outdoor gigs I was looking forward to. Um, all of which are artists that are like the most cliched middle-aged white men artists you can think of. Um, and then like not being able to go to, to, to galleries again, living in London, you know, we have this wealth of um, artistic and cultural institutions. I, I went to the design museum when they reopened and, you know, that, that was, it was great to be back there, but again, it was, you know, sort of a weird, um, experience and obviously you know, to an extent there's, there's big questions about whether you know we should be going back to organizations like the Tate like the National Theatre like South Bank um, which most of which isn't open yet um, until we know you know what their kind of stance is going to be towards their staff and then the footy like again like not going to Anfield is really weird for me um, so yeah like it's really odd watching football yeah. with the crowds and it's really odd not going to Liverpool every sort of two or three weeks as well. Yeah, well, most of my Liverpool fan mates were, you know, supposedly upset about not being able to go to Anfield for the end of the season, but I was like, you're a Liverpool fan from the South, you've never been to Anfield anyway. <laughs> you can't really complain. But um, that sort of, yeah, sort of segues nice into what I want to sort of discuss finally about, um, you know, the North. Um, have you... Um, you've obviously spent a bit of time uh, in Leeds and Liverpool and I was just wondering if, you know, those cities had uh, any influence on your way of your outlook, your way of thinking, the work that you've done um, and if, you know, you own anything in your career to those cities in particular. Yeah, I mean, I, I owe everything to Liverpool, uh, having like grown up there and developed um most of my kind of like take on the world actually living in Liverpool. Um, and I did, like I did all my um, academic degrees there as, as well. Um, and it's it, like, it's a dead interesting city to study because like almost like none of the rules apply there. Um, but also at the same time, 
it has these like crazy fantasies about itself, um, which like I've, I've actually written, um, oh, this is like a decade ago now, trying to write about how some of these like kind of um, misconceptions that the city is very comfortable with as its urban myths. And actually, I think um, Laura Brown, who's a kind of um, festival organizer, organizer, sort of artist and uh, consultant working in Liverpool, um, she's written about these, you know, sort of slightly problematic fantasies quite recently as well, I think earlier this year. So yeah, like, you know, to an extent, um, Liverpool very much the, uh, the kind of making of me really. Um, and it's always a shame that um, in some ways, like I'm not doing research work um, there anymore. Um, yeah, because it's it's a fascinating place to, to, to work on. Um, I know as part of the COVID project, we're going to be doing some work in Newcastle because one of my uh, co-investigators is, is based at uh, the University of Newcastle's um, History of Art Department. And it'd be nice to kind of go back there and see how things are different from when I was doing work there in like, I guess, 2005, 2006. Um, and obviously they've got particular kind of interesting dynamics of their art and theatre scenes, you know, fairly kind of like far away and, and disconnected um, from, um, from London in, in a way that Liverpool kind of is, but in, in a maybe a different and distinctive way. And yeah, it, it, it's interesting as well, thinking about maybe all of the major Northern cities and how these dynamics of inequality are still there, but you know, they, they kind of play out in slightly different ways. And a lot of the, the stuff that's, you know, compounds issues in London, like, you know, the housing crisis, um, are slightly unique to London, but then, the way that you know venues are being closed and it's difficult to find space and stuff i mean that's true across almost all of the major northern cities um and it's something that you know um is a kind of real live issue now um so yeah like um i, I owe it all to liverpool yeah so i mean in your own personal experience and in your research have you found um many trends to do with regional inequality and you've managed to identified things that are different for cities in the north and creatives in the north? Yeah, I mean, it, it's very interesting this because um, we were sort of debating whether to do this as a specific uh, chapter in the book, but we, we'd actually, um, we've written about it um, in, in a separate thing for a, uh, this big kind of cross-European um, anthology of sociology uh, of art that came out earlier this year. And a few of us did a paper actually trying to look at um, comparing London um, and, and the rest of the country. And I guess to sort of like distill it down, the, the big tension is that we've got a culture and creative economy that is dominated by London, uh, whether it's like, you know, the major publishers being based there, the film industry, um, key bits of the television industry, obviously the West End and the theatre industry. Um, London is, you know, a hub in the kind of global art world, not just in terms of um, the, the national um, kind of artistic and uh, cultural system. And this means that, you know, there's definite tensions between like, you know, do you have to go to London um, to make it? And what we find is that actually doing fair work you know many of the issues that you confront in London um, apply kind of slightly differently outside and in some ways it's you know um, creative occupations are almost kind of like sensible normal jobs that's not quite accurate but they're much more kind of like reasonable jobs if you're outside of London you know, you can be embedded in local cultural scenes. Um, housing costs are much cheaper. It's possible to get, you know, kind of really good uh, networks and be, you know, a working museum, uh, musician, a working visual artist, you, you know, um, be, um, you know, a, a working uh, creative without, I guess, a lot of the kind of baggage that comes with London and a lot of the, you know, kind of winner takes all uh, competition that happens in London. At the same time, it's clear that 
you know, people's creative careers are massively boosted by uh, the kind of clustering advantages that you get in London. And one of our sort of like, I suppose, you know, demands slash kind of like insights, which isn't really an insight, is that the more we disperse and have a kind of fairer regional geography of the creative economy, the more we're likely to see less, um, you know, kind of aggressive levels um, of, of inequality. Not Regional distributions is not the panacea that will solve all problems. And we can see that actually with, you know, the BBC's move to Salford has not made the BBC a less exclusive uh, institution as a whole, but it has helped various elements of kind of representation, commissioning, stuff, stuff like this. So, yeah, um, the kind of broad trends, as with everything I've been talking about, are it's bad, but there are things that are kind of good about the regional differences, particularly just in terms of, you know, um, people having these sustainable, um, good and decent careers outside of, yeah, the baggage of London. And that was Dr. Dave O'Brien talking to the State of the Arts about his new book, Culture is Bad for You, and about the inequalities that he uncovers in his book across the creative industry. Um, thanks a lot to Dr. Dave O'Brien for joining us and thank you to everybody who's listened today. If you want to access the rest of our podcast, you can go to our website. You can also access them on iTunes now. If you head to our site, you can actually find an extract from Culture is Bad for You. Uh, you can also just buy the full copy from Manchester University Press. Make sure you follow Dr. Dave O'Brien to find out a bit more about what he's getting up to. You can stay up to date with everything that's going on with arts and culture in the north by having a look on our website, following us on social media, and of course tuning into our podcast. So thanks a lot for listening and catch you next time. Bye.